Our great God and Father in heaven, we are thankful to you for the blessings of this day that you have watched over us through the first half of this week and have granted us an opportunity to meet together again this evening and open your word together. We are thankful for every occasion of Christian fellowship and gathered prayer. We pray, O Lord, even as we sing these prayers back to you, that you would hear in heaven from your mighty throne and that you would act that you who have saved us by the blood of your Son would stir us by the work and presence of your Holy Spirit, that we might live holy and upright lives, pleasing in your sight, and that you would work in this world, O God, by means of saving judgments, bringing the wicked and ungodly to repentance or to everlasting ruin, and bringing the righteous safely through the trials that we do face in this present world. We pray, O God, that you would be with those who are suffering uh, for those who have been subject to violence, even in the first half of this week, as we see uh, violence in the Middle East over the weekend and know so many who have suffered there, we pray, O oh God, that you would bless and comfort families who have lost loved ones, that you would protect innocents who are still in harm's way, and that you would bless efforts being made to bring those evildoers to justice and to a just end. And we pray, O oh God, that that would indeed be the case. We pray that even in the nation of Israel, you would be pleased to use this tragedy and violence to awaken men, women, and children to saving faith in your Messiah, and that they would turn to Jesus and be forgiven of all of their sins. We pray, O oh God, that you would bless our own nation. We pray that you would give us wise and discerning leaders. We pray that you would defeat all folly and wickedness in high places and that you would raise up God-fearing men and bring justice to rule in our cities and in our streets. We ask your blessing upon your church, O God, that you would make her faithful and strong and help her to navigate faithfully and with a faithful prophetic voice the circumstances that we see surrounding us in this world. We ask your blessing upon our own congregation and our brothers and sisters who are ill, who are struggling, who are dealing with chronic pains and woes of various kinds, both physical as well as mental and emotional. We pray, God, that you would strengthen and bless each one according to their need. Grant healing to those who are ill. Bless those recovering from surgery. And grant us, O Lord, the opportunity and privilege to meet together, all together, uh, for worship again. We pray, O oh God, that you would bless our study tonight, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, that by uh, the study of your word, our faith would be increased, our hope would be deepened, and our love for you would grow more and more so long as we live. We pray in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, we have come to uh, the final lesson in this series of studies, although maybe not the final class, we'll see. But uh, the final handout that you're going to get, at least, where we begin to draw to a close this series of studies on an optimistic eschatology. And just as we uh, begin to think about some common objections to the thesis that we have advanced uh, over the last couple of months, let me remind you that when we talk about optimism with regard to the future, we're not talking about optimism with regard to the ultimate future, because all Christians share that. All Christians know that Jesus is going to come again and that the dead are going to be raised and that the wicked are going to be cast into hell along with the devil and that the church will enter into everlasting joy in the eternal state, however that is understood or interpreted in different traditions. But we're talking about optimism with regard to the nearer future, that is, of this present world. Optimism about the course of this world 
prior to the return of the Lord Jesus. And as we will remind you again tonight, it is not a naive optimism. It is not an unrealistic optimism. It's not an optimism that's detached from the reality of persistent struggles and trials of various kinds that we do face in the present world. But it is an optimism grounded in confidence, both in the promises of God and in the power of the gospel, that one day the nations will turn in faith and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. That doesn't mean that every person in every nation will be truly converted. It doesn't mean that every nation will be a consistent theocracy, whatever that means. But it does mean that the Bible seems both to prophesy and to promise that through the preaching of the gospel, eventually the nations of this world, by and large, will acknowledge that Jesus is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, They will flow to Jerusalem, desiring to be taught the law of God, desiring to walk in His ways. The ends of all the earth will hear and fear and turn to Yahweh, that the future of this world is not secular pluralism, but rather is Christian piety. Now, we've made the case for believing that. We've surveyed many different passages in the Old and New Testaments. And so the burden in this last section of our study is going to be answering common objections and what we might call problem passages. Every view, every position that you take has at least some passages that on a first reading or surface level reading might seem to say otherwise. Even doctrines as well established as the doctrine of the Trinity. You'll see in John chapter 14, Jesus saying, my father is greater than I. And the the person who denies the Trinity says, aha, but, but what about that? So when we say problem passages, we don't actually mean that there's any problem with the passage or even that they are passages that do in fact set aside the things that we have suggested are true, but they are passages that have to be addressed because at least at one level, in one sense, they might seem to contradict Uh, the thesis that we have set forth. Now, I invited you to send me problem passages, defeaters, arguments. I got emails from two people. So either I've done such a phenomenal job of making the case that now you no longer see any part of Scripture that cuts the other way, or you're just not very diligent about doing your homework. So I'll, I'll let you decide which of those is the case. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through various arguments. A couple of these we've dealt with really in the earlier portions of our study, but I want to circle back to them and just at least acknowledge that these are sometimes raised as objections to post-millennialism or even what some people might call optimistic amillennialism, but but to this optimism with regard to the future of the present world. And the first one that I want to raise, I'm going to raise each of these as questions rather than as assertions. The first one of these is, does post-millennialism contradict the doctrine of human sinfulness? Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I think that the impression that some people have about postmillennialism is 
the source of this objection. And, and it's, it's rooted in a misunderstanding of the position or maybe a lack of clarity with regard to communicating the position. Because it might seem to many Christians, including many Calvinistic Christians who have a robust doctrine of original sin and total depravity, it might seem as if there are only two possibilities. Either every single person is going to be regenerated, savingly, given a new heart, true and lasting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or evil is going to continue to persist and appear to triumph in the present world. Because it's just not going to be possible for a world with unregenerate people in it to be substantially improved. I think that that's where, to some extent, this objection uh, lies and, and maybe arises. But postmillennialism never has affirmed that every person is going to be savingly regenerated. At any given point in time, at any given point in human history, it, we acknowledge that some people, even who may profess faith in Christ, do not truly possess Christ. And there may be people even who do not so much as profess faith in Christ, but are simply willing to go along with the general Christianity of their political environment. And so postmillennialism is not saying we're going to eradicate evil in this world or we're going to eradicate evil in the human race. But postmillennialism does deny that that means that evil is going to commit, continue undiminished, that it's going to continue to run parallel to the Christian faith and to the Christian church and is going to seem at times to prevail even over Christian witness. And if you think about it for just a minute, I think you can recognize that this objection does in fact fail because history has already demonstrated that it fails. Prior to the introduction of the gospel in virtually every continent in this world, we'll set aside Antarctica, I don't know what the, you know, what the culture of the penguins down there is like, but, but basically every continent in this world prior to the introduction of the Christian faith was populated with at least some people groups that were rather barbaric in their culture and practices. When I say rather barbaric, I'm obviously making a significant understatement. The introduction of Christians and Christianity was directly opposed to many of the prevailing customs in many native people groups in every part of this planet. And what has happened in the aftermath of the introduction of Christianity. Well, I'll tell you what hasn't happened is we have not seen explicitly, consistently, or universally Christian nations organized on every continent or in every place. But you know what we have seen? We have seen human morality improve. We have seen social customs transform. We have seen communities that once believed it was appropriate to make war against a neighboring tribe and then eat their neighbors. Societies that would say if a woman's husband dies because he was 40 years older than her, then she should be burned on the funeral pyre with him. We have seen societies like that abandon those traditions. And why? Because Christians showed up and said that's wrong. You're not supposed to behave in those ways. Not every person, not every people group that was associated with those traditions has been entirely converted to Jesus Christ. And yet the general level of morality has dramatically improved. A person doesn't have to be regenerated to be outwardly moral. In fact, we know this when we think about the 
uses of the law. We say the first use of the law is to convict us of our sin and drive us to Jesus Christ. The third use of the law is to show a regenerate person, a believer in Jesus, how he ought to live in faith and gratitude before the Lord. What's that second use of the law? It is as a restraint against evil. That second use of the law is the reason that all of the people driving on the highway with you, many of whom no doubt are not Christians, nevertheless step on the brake when they see a straight state trooper. And it's because they know that they're over the limit and they don't want to get pulled over. Restraint of the law. They are not penitent. And yet the law has that force. Well, that law is also written upon the human conscience. There are certain things that men, even unbelievers, will not do because they know I can't get away with it. Now, you might say, Pastor, that's not doing their souls any good. That's true. If anything, they may be under greater condemnation because in their heart, they're guilty of the things that they're not willing to do with their hands. But you know who it's doing some good for? Me. Because if it's all the same to you, I would rather live next door to a nominal Christian or to a virtuous pagan than to an axe murderer. Now, the nominal Christian and the virtuous pagan are going to go to hell with the axe murderer. But if it's all the same, I'd rather the axe murderer not live in my neighborhood. And that's the idea. When Christianity spreads to all of the nations, when the gospel is preached, we recognize not every person is going to believe it. But we do believe that nations, cities, families, cultures can and will experience sanctification. Sanctification proceeds slowly by degrees. That's the way it's working in your life. That's the way it's working in your children and in your grandchildren. That's the way it is working in cities and nations throughout human history. We don't expect to be fully sanctified when we complete our earthly pilgrimage. I know that when I die, whenever that is tonight or many years from now, I'm going to die recognizing that I'm still a sinner. And I'm still struggling against many sins in my heart, externally, internally, that it's going to be an ongoing battle. And yet... I have good reason to hope and believe that I will be struggling less with at least some of my sins at that time than I was at some earlier period of time. That sanctification, progress in sanctification is is a real thing. That that we die more and more into sin and we live more and more into righteousness. And no, that, that work's not finished. But that doesn't mean that we're just simply spinning our wheels. People grow in holiness. People grow in morality. People acquire better habits to the glory of God. And not just individual people, but family people. Multi-generationally, I want my children to be more faithful Christians than I and their mother have been. And I pray that my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren will outdo any of my kids. We want to see that kind of sanctification, but not just in the families and not just in the church. But in the world itself, why would we not expect that same kind of progress? Well, I think the Bible does, in fact, promise and prophesy that that kind of progress or something like it is in our future. Secondly, if all of the... This is second objection, by the way, not the second point of of the earlier one. Second objection. If all of the nations are to be converted, why is there a final rebellion? Now, this is a real question. This is a real thorny issue. 
In Revelation chapter 20, if you're familiar with that text, the the place from which we derive this idea of the millennial reign of Christ, Christ will reign for a thousand years as the devil is bound for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations. In verse 7 of that same chapter, the Bible says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what what seems to be suggested is that at the end of the millennium, the devil who's been bound is loosed, He deceives the nations, Gog and Magog, who are wiped out in the Old Testament. You remember the prophet Ezekiel dealing with that. Gog and Magog, uh, in some way, symbolically or otherwise, are there, and they surround the camp of God's people, and then fire falls from heaven, takes them all out, and we, we come to the end. Like Jesus returns and deals with it all. But the question is, if the world is going to be largely Christianized, if the world is, if all of the enemies of Christ except for death are going to be subdued under his feet, where does this rebellion come from? How do we have rebellion? Now, I want to say, this is not just a problem for postmillennialism. This is a problem for other eschatological viewpoints as well. And there's not really an easy answer to this. Maybe an amillennialist would say, well, no, this fits completely within my understanding my paradigm for thinking about the future because I think the wicked are going to continue right alongside the righteous and then at the end of history in this present world it's going to look like the wicked win because there's going to be a final rebellion, a final persecution and then a cataclysmic return of the Lord. Well, that's, that's one possibility. But I will say that post-millennialists know that this passage is in the Bible and they acknowledge the difficulty of it and yet they don't believe that it overturns the broader testimony of Scripture that we've spent so many weeks talking about. It is a hard passage partly because of the symbolism of the book and partly because of some chronological questions in the chapter. But I want to suggest three ways that it has been answered by post-millennialists tonight. The first is that there are some post-millennialists who interpret the first 10 verses of Revelation 20 as referring entirely to the intermediate state. And so they do not believe that these verses in 7 to 10 refer to a literal final rebellion or a threat against the saints on earth. And there are some pretty prominent post-millennialists like B.B. Warfield who have actually argued that, that the millennial reign being described there is the reign of the saints who are asleep in Jesus, who are with the Lord even now, and that this picture of rebellion is associated with that spiritual realm rather than with something that's actually happening on the now converted earth. A second view, and this is, I think, the majority of postmillennialists, at least at this point, most postmillennialists affirm that these verses do refer to a final event, a future event, in which nominal Christians will be distinguished from the true saints, and then the end will come. And what these postmillennialists will say is, well, I mean, we've always acknowledged that there were going to be wheat and tares, that there were going to be some who were truly converted and some who were only outwardly converted, and this is going to be where the, the rebellion comes from, that there are going to be some of these nominal, unconverted people in this world who are going to gather together right before the end, and then Jesus' return will subdue them. And I've given you a quote there from Ken Gentry, uh, who takes that view and has written about it in a number of places. A third possibility, and this is associated with many different 
we would say post-millennials, although we're using that a little bit anachronistically, because this is a view that's been found throughout church history, but, but more contemporarily has been uh, expounded by uh, Philip Kaiser. He says that the nations in rebellion here are the non-elect who have just been resurrected. In other words, he actually places these verses at the return of Christ, at the time of the general resurrection of the dead, and happening within the same hour that all of the dead are resurrected. And you might say, well, that seems just absolutely absurd. I've given you some references on the study guide. I'm not going to take the time to unpack all of that because it's, it's, it's a little over an hour sermon on sermon audio, and he's got a full manuscript as well that's online. You can read. You can follow those, uh, those footnotes. Uh, but it's an interesting idea that I think uh, has some plausibility that is worthy of consideration. Now, what I decided I wanted to do on this particular objection tonight is not try to dogmatically settle it. I will tell you that I, that second answer has been my view for as long as I've been self-consciously optimistic about the future of this world. And yet I will admit that reading some of the other explanations, either the first or the third alternatives, have really call, caused me to begin to question whether this final rebellion is something that we have to concede or whether that theory can actually be challenged. And so, but I want to be cautious about that. I don't want to just quickly jump from one view to another. I will say that I think there is such an overwhelming amount of evidence in the rest of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, that it is reasonable to think that some of these explanations for this passage in Revelation 20 are in fact plausible. And to say that maybe we don't fully understand how, but it does seem uh, that the Bible affirms that both these nations will be converted and that some type of rebellion, whenever, however that's to be understood, will in fact take place and that these are not incompatible ideas. There may be, at, at least at this point in your life, a, a degree of mystery that you say, I don't know exactly how to fully reconcile it, but I do know that there are various ways that it could be reconciled. A third objection is, doesn't the Bible say that only a remnant will be saved? And this, this objection we nearly spent a lot more time on. I'm going to try and do it briefly tonight, but honestly, this could be its own lesson or maybe more than one lesson. There is an idea that is particularly prominent in Reformed circles, although it is also prominent in dispensational circles, um, that the church's identity and character, as revealed in Scripture, is always going to be understood through the motif of exile, pilgrimage, and remnant that it's always going to be the few. It's always going to be the few in contrast to the many. The few that find the way to life, as we talked about several weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll refer to it here again in just a minute, versus the many that follow the way to destruction. And that this is always the way that the church is to be understood. Let me give you several passages that are used sometimes in defense of this. Isaiah chapter 10, beginning at verse 23, And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, and such as have escaped the house of Jacob, will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Let me stop there for just a second. Remember that Israel had depended on the Assyrian Empire. They had looked to Assyria for political salvation against various other geopolitical threats, and then Assyria turns around and destroys them and takes their people away into captivity. So that's what he's referring to. He's saying they will no longer look to the nations for their salvation. They will look to Yahweh. And then continuing, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. 
The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord Yahweh of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. So a real strong emphasis that it'll be the remnant of God's people that return and experience that salvation. Matthew chapter 20, at the end of the parable of the workers in the vineyard, uh, Jesus says, verse 16, So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Similarly, at the end of the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22, verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. Or we could include the language that we dealt with several weeks ago from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Well, let me start by reminding you what we said in an earlier part of our study. And that is that the language in Matthew chapter 7 and the parallel to that language in Luke chapter 13, which is actually a more expansive discussion of this few finding the narrow way versus the many following the broad way, that in context, those statements seem clearly to be referring to the Jews in Jesus' day the Jews in Jesus' own generation. And we might say for many generations of the Jewish people, it has been few who have followed the way of salvation in Christ versus the many that have followed the way of destruction. You see that most clearly in Luke chapter 13 when he says that you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sitting in the kingdom of God and many coming from all the rest, you know, the four points of the compass, all of the other nations streaming to the kingdom of God, eating with the patriarchs, and you yourselves, speaking to the Jewish leaders, cast out. That is the context of the few and the many. And I think the same can be concluded with regard to the statements Jesus makes in Matthew 20 and Matthew 22. If you look at those parables, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, you'll remember that the vineyard owner goes out early in the morning to hire workers for the day. He promises them a denarius for a day's work, and he goes out every few hours throughout the day hiring more laborers, promising them to give them a fair wage And when the end of the day comes, those who were hired at the 11th hour receive a denarius. And the guys that were hired at the beginning of the day think, well, you know, we were promised a denarius, but if these guys getting paid a denarius for one hour of work, if if that's the the pay scale that we're working on, we're going to get a lot more. And they come and they receive a denarius. Now, what's going on there? Well, what's going on there is Jesus is illustrating a picture of the latecomer Gentiles entering into the same fullness of grace, the same blessing that is promised to Israel. And Israel saying, what's the deal? We've been God's people for a millennia and a half. I mean, Abraham was our father 1,800 years ago. Why are you now rewarding the Gentiles with the blessings that you promised us almost 2,000 years ago? And, And the Lord is saying, isn't it right for me to do what I wish with what is mine? And so that parable of the workers in the vineyard is about this Jew-Gentile contrast. And that's why he says, the first will be last, the last first. Who was called first? The Jews. Who enters into the kingdom first? The Gentiles. The first comes last, because as we saw in Romans chapter 11, the Jews reject the gospel and are hardened giving opportunity for the Gentiles to be brought in. The inclusion of the Gentiles makes the Jews jealous and brings them into the kingdom, and thus all Israel is saved. And so the first will be last, 
and the last to be called will be first, for many are called, but few are chosen, in the context of the generation to whom God sent, the, the, the people to whom God sent, the prophets, I mean Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, they all go to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. Many are called, but few of them were chosen. And so I think that is the point of so much of that language as you find it in the New Testament. But more broadly speaking, many Christians believe that this idea of remnant is really a controlling paradigm for the church as a whole, both Jews and Gentiles. That it won't only be a few of the Jews from earlier periods of history that will believe in Jesus, it'll only be a few people across the board. Because the church, the church has this category or this characteristic of the remnant. But I think this confuses several points. First of all, the specific language of remnant. If you just do, I mean, you could do this word search in English if you want to. If you just look through your Bible for all of the references to remnant and various associated ideas in both the Old and New Testaments, what you will see is that the language of remnant is always associated with Israel. It's always associated with the number of those who faithfully serve God among the Jewish people. I am open to being corrected on this. I did not easily find an exception to that. That when this idea of remnant is being addressed to the people of God, it's always with regard to the Jews. It's always with regard to Israel. Secondly, the application of Old Testament language concerning exile and pilgrimage, the application of that language to persecuted Christians in the New Testament, as Peter uses it, it, it does not suggest that that will be the perpetual state of the church through all generations. You don't, ha- you don't have what you would expect to have in the New Testament, and that is repeatedly multiple New Testament authors referring to the church as in exile, referring to the church in the wilderness, referring to the church as pilgrims, referring to the church as the remnant. That's, th- that's not what you have. In fact, the number of references are astonishingly few. Peter in writing to persecuted saints, refers to them as exiles, refers to them as pilgrims. But that makes perfect sense given the historical context of those to whom he's writing. They are the few in the midst of the many, and the many are hostile to them. They are going through the fire. It is like being under fire, being in exile. But that does not say that that is the controlling paradigm for all of God's people throughout all generations and in all places. And that brings us to the third point of confusion. And that is with regard to this experience of wilderness and exile by Israel. Israel's experience in the wilderness and in exile were judgments from God that were assigned due to their unbelief and disobedience. Now, I've said before, and I'll say again, I think that there are wilderness motifs in the New Testament. I think the Gospel of Mark, for example, is a good good case study in that. There are wilderness motifs. There is a sense in which the church has not yet arrived at her final rest. Isn't that what the Hebrews writer, we'll call him Paul for the sake of reference, right? Hebrews 4 is saying there remains a rest for the people of God. Okay, yeah. So there's kind of a wilderness aspect to that. We are, we're journeying, but we're not yet entirely where we want to be. We are being fed with bread from heaven, but we're not yet seeing the Lord face to face. But you need to understand 
that when we talk about Israel in the wilderness, we're talking about a people under judgment because they didn't believe God. And that's not the church. That's not the way in which this wilderness motif works with the church. When, when Israel went into exile, they were in exile because they were being punished for their sins. Whereas the New Testament says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. She's not under condemnation. She's under grace. She's under his blessing and favor. I think what often happens is we have certain assumptions about the church's status as only a remnant within the world, and that then kind of is read back into Scripture. We see this language of remnant, and we don't notice that it's talking about the remnant of Jews, the remnant of Israelites, the remnant of faithful people in the midst of an apostate nation who were actually serving the Lord, and we don't, we don't realize that it's not referring to the church as a whole. It's not referring to the Gentile church, for example. It's not referring to the church in the future. These misunderstandings are read back into the text rather than being derived from it. And if we set aside that assumption, what might we conclude from more objectively surveying the evidence? Find me a reference that suggests that the church on earth, composed of both Jew and Gentile in the future, is only a remnant. I can't find that passage in the Bible. And maybe you will help me find something that I've overlooked, but I, I haven't found it. And that's striking to me because I was very much one who grew up and even for many years as a minister just kind of had this controlling assumption that, well, God's people are always the remnant. God's people are always the remnant. I'm, I'm sure there's probably all kinds of sermons online of me saying things like that, just kind of uncritically. It's, it's a presupposition by which we're then reading Scripture. But what if that presupposition is wrong? What if you challenge and overturn that presupposition and then you go back and you reread the text? What might you find? Another objection. I don't know which number this is now because I didn't number them and I've turned the page and I have no idea where I'm at. What about the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the tares? Now, we dealt with the parable of the wheat and the tares before. I'm going to only say something brief about that. But I did want to circle back to these parables of the kingdom because it's not only the parable of the wheat and the tares that sometimes is brought into the conversation. It's also the parable of the sower. You remember Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 18. Jesus says, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now, it would be understandable if somebody looked at that and said, well, pastor, this is a picture of how the gospel goes forth. And you notice it's only about a fourth of the people that hear the gospel that actually are saved by it, right? I mean, you've got, you've got a quarter of the seed that's being wasted on the path, and you've got a quarter of it that's getting burned up quickly on rocky ground. You've got a quarter of it that is getting choked out, and even though the plant may not die, it's, it's just completely useless. It's like grass. It's unfruitful because it's surrounded by thorns. And then you've got that, that remnant, right? This is where remnant theology gets read into the parable. You've got that remnant, that one-fourth or so 
of the people that hear the gospel will actually be saved by it. But I would just point out that's not what the parable is about at all. It's, it's not giving you a mathematical formula for understanding gospel outcomes. It's just illustrating these are the different kinds of reactions that you get to the gospel. These are the different kinds of hearts that receive the gospel. These are the different kinds of challenges that are witnessed as people hear the gospel and respond to it in some way. The parable of the sower is not a parable about earthly effectiveness or long-term outcomes from gospel preaching. That's, that's, just, that's trying to glean something from the parable that it was never meant to address. The parable of the wheat and the tares, which, as we said in a previous lesson, is sometimes thought to suggest kind of the, the concurrent existence of righteousness and unrighteousness until the end of the present world. Well, it, it does kind of teach that in one sense, but, but all postmillennialists would affirm that that's true. It describes a wheat field that has tares in it. And the tares are so surrounded by wheat that the master says, if you try to pull up the tear, you will damage the wheat. And so leave it where it is until the harvest. The field is the world, and the world is a wheat field in that parable. It is not a tear field. And it is not equally divided. It's not as if you say, well, that section over there, we could just burn all of that. We could clear cut that because that's all tears. No, no, no. It's a wheat field with some tears found in it. And that doesn't contradict anything that we've said about optimism with regard to the future. Because we know that there are going to be some sons of the wicked one, some unbelievers even until the return of Jesus. But what we believe is that when Jesus comes back, the world, the field, the world is going to be a wheat field. It's not going to be what we might say it is right now. I mean, like, would you look at the world right now and say it's, it's full of wheat? I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't. I mean, we want to be realistic about where we're at. But, of course, if we're in the early centuries of the church, that's not really a problem, is it? You say, well, there's still a lot of ground to be cleared, isn't there? There's still a lot of rocks to be pulled. There's still a lot of brush to be burned. There's still a lot of work to be done. But when Jesus comes back, he's coming back for a wheat field, not just to deal with a field full of tares. Another objection or question that's raised, doesn't Jesus suggest that when he returns, he will not find faith on the earth. Do you know the New Testament suggests that? Well, here's where it might. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, Then Jesus spoke a parable to them, that men ought always to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Well, there it is. Well, there are several questions that have to be answered about this passage. First of all, notice that this question, this rhetorical question that Jesus asks at the end, comes at the end of a parable, and we have to ask, what is the point of the parable? Luke tells us in verse 1, Jesus is teaching his disciples that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. In other words, the purpose of the parable is ethical, not prophetic. He's not telling us this parable to suggest something to us about the future of the world, 
I'm going to illustrate that when I return, there aren't going to be any believers left. The church is going to basically have disappeared by the second coming of Christ. Now, that's not the point of the parable at all. The point of the parable is to encourage the disciples to pray persistently, like that widow, to cry out to the Lord for justice, knowing that God will be more receptive to their prayer than this judge was to this aggravating woman. So what is the point of the parable? The point of the parable has to be kept in mind in whatever inference or conclusion we draw about this final rhetorical question in it. Number two, do Jesus's, does Jesus' question imply a particular answer? Now, this is where knowing a little bit about Greek will be helpful to you because there are some commentaries on this passage that will point out, well, in Greek, there are basically three, there's more, but let's say three ways to develop a conditional question a conditional construction here. One of them implies a negative answer. One of them implies a positive answer. One of them is ambiguous. And there are commentaries on this passage written by very intelligent men who will say this question is constructed in such a way as to um, imply a negative answer. So Jesus is saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And you understand that the obvious response is no. But that's not actually true. The Greek text does not is not constructed in that way. It's ambiguous. It's actually put together in such a way that Jesus is using this for rhetorical effect and not trying to evoke a particular response. He's trying to provoke thought. He's trying to get people to say, that's a good question. The point of the question, in other words, is not to positively assert something about the faith that Christ will find when he comes. It's more to point the question back at the audience and say, am I going to be a person who, like this woman, is crying out to the judge for justice? Or am I going to be complacent? Am I going to be discouraged? Am I going to give up in the practice of prayer? That's what the question is really designed to do. Third, is the faith that Jesus refers to here faith in him or the faith that is seen in the persevering prayer that the parable is all about? Because the whole parable is telling the people, don't give up, don't despair, don't quit on prayer. Keep praying. Be like this woman. Aggravate God until he gives you justice. But but God's going to be more responsive, right? You don't have to wear him out. He loves you. He wants to hear your prayer. And And if you can aggravate a human judge into giving you justice, how much more willing will your Father in heaven be to give you justice? So keep praying. What is the faith that Jesus has in mind here? Jesus is not saying that when he returns, people will deny that he is Lord. But he is asking, will any of you still be persevering in faith, in prayer, in hope when I come? Are you still going to be crying for justice? Or will you have become complacent about the injustice among which you live? And then there's a third point. And here you're going to have to take out your Bible because I did not put this reference on your study guide. Tried to include much as I could for the sake of time tonight. But here we're going to have to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 17. Which coming is the Lord referring to? Now I'm going to have you read this passage with me because it's going to be important in a couple of these objections that we're going to look at and probably not all tonight. But I'm going to read Luke chapter 17 beginning at verse 20. We're going to circle back to verses 20 and 21 in a, either in a few minutes or tomorrow or next week, probably next week. Um, but I'm, I'm going to start in verse 20 
of Luke chapter 17. And then I'm going to read through the first eight verses in Luke chapter 18. Okay? So it'll be helpful if you're following along, just because it's a little bit of a longer reading. Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 20. Now, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you or among you. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wise, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built... But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together, the one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, the one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So Jesus said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Who used the eagle as a symbol of their army? Then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. But he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Which coming are we talking about? Well, the the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Son of Man, the day of the Son of Man, described at the end of Luke chapter 17, I would argue, is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And if you've listened to our series on the Olivet Discourse, if you haven't, it's online. Teach through line by line, verse by verse, Mark chapter 13, with reference to the parallels in Luke and Matthew. If you listen to that series on the Olivet Discourse, you'll understand why I think immediately, as soon as you read this, you'll realize... Well, almost everything that's said in Luke chapter 17 is also said in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse. This isn't the same time, this isn't the same conversation, but it seems to be about the very same thing. And really, in striking ways, the similarities are really remarkable. Jesus describes a sudden judgment that comes upon an ungodly world where there are righteous people, a remnant of righteous people hidden within the community, Noah and Lot. What are Noah and Lot supposed to be doing prior to the judgment day? They're supposed to be persevering in prayer in hope of the Lord's vengeance. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Now, if you're thinking, no, 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 Pastor, clearly 
That judgment, that day of the Lord at the end of Luke chapter 17 is the second coming of Christ. And pray tell, why is it so important that you not go back down inside your house if you're up on the housetop? Or that if you are outside the house, you should not turn back, but should flee to the mountains? How exactly is that helping you on the, on the day of the second coming? Like, I mean, you're going you're to go down inside the house and Jesus is going to miss you? Like, he's... He's going to leave, and, and you're going to be like, wait, I'm supposed to go too, right? Or you say, well, no, obviously this is about the rapture, because one will be taken and one will be left, right? That's, that's not what it's talking about. That's not what it's talking about. In fact, the one who is taken is the one who is taken away to death. Again, we don't have time to fully develop that, but if, but if you listen to the series on the Olivet Discourse, we've, we've talked about that at some length. Where is this going to happen, Lord? Well, wherever the body is, you'll see... The eagles are gathered together. Like the, the birds are going to be there. And Rome did, in fact, gather around the dead body when it besieged Jerusalem and then burned the city. There's a remnant of God's people in the city. When the Lord comes in judgment with those Roman armies, will he really find faith in the land? Will he really find faith? That's the, the significance here, right? Will he really find faith as he did in Noah's day, in Lot's day, will they be persevering in prayer and hope, or will they have gotten con comfortable with the injustice around them? Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2 that Lot's righteous soul was tormented day by day with the unrighteousness around him. Calls him a righteous man three times, by the way. Lot was tormented. He's crying out to God for justice. What are the Christians supposed to be doing prior to the judgment of Jerusalem? They're supposed to be crying out for justice and watching and waiting and preparing. I think that's what's going on in this parable. I don't think Jesus is saying anything about his second coming, as a matter of fact. I think he's making a rhetorical point to point it back to the audience and say, how is the Lord going to find you? Are you going to be praying in faith? Or are you going to be comfortably living in the midst of the ungodly when that day of judgment comes? I would just point out here before we, before we finish with this point. You have to remember that an interpretation that proves too much, proves too much. No one with an orthodox view of eschatology, right? Dispensationalists, historic premillennialists, amillennialists, postmillennialists, nobody believes that when Jesus comes the second time, the final time, that there are not going to be any believers on the earth. Like everybody knows the Bible says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So we all understand that there's going to be a church on earth when Jesus returns. So if you try to interpret Luke 18.8 in a way that suggests faith will have died out, and that proves the pessimistic eschatological position, well, you've actually proven too much, because not any, any orthodox eschatological position believes that the faith is going to die out. And that's not the point of what Jesus is doing there. I am reluctant to attempt this, but I'm going to anyway. Because it's only half a page, right? All right. One more, and then we'll be done for tonight. See if you have any questions. What about the apostasy and man of lawlessness described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? This is another one that could have taken a lesson unto itself. I'm going to point you to a resource here. But let me, first of all, read it and give you some things to think about. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, 
We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by word or uh, by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, this passage is difficult. I want to, I want to acknowledge that right up front. And again, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not me backpedaling in terms of my optimistic convictions. It's just acknowledging that there are some passages that are difficult for us to understand. If you have your Bible open, just go over to First and Second Thessalonians for a second. Let me point out part of the difficulty here is that we have three eschatologically oriented passages in a row across these two letters and figuring out, are they referring to the same event or to different events? And if different events, which events is very, very challenging. Not all postmillennialists agree. Not all amillennialists agree. I don't even know that all premillennialists agree because there are some real thorny questions here. So, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4... At the end of the chapter, beginning of verse 13, you have this passage that is eschatologically oriented. I, I referenced it just a moment ago. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, well, that eschatological language, the parousia, the coming of Christ, but which coming are we talking about? Is this the coming in judgment against Jerusalem in AD 70? Is this the coming at the end of all time? Is this some other symbolic coming that we are not thinking about. Then we continue in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We continue to, to read, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And he goes on and talks about the cataclysmic, sudden appearance. No one's going to be able to anticipate it. You just need to live in a state of watchfulness. Again, are we talking about the same day of the Lord? I mean, we, maybe we are, right? The chapter break there, Paul didn't put that there. The translators put that there. The editors put that there. Is it the same day of the Lord? And then we have the second letter to Thessalonica. And here in chapter 2 that we just read, we, we learn that some of the Thessalonian saints are concerned that they missed it. This day of the Lord, it's already happened, and we missed it. I want you to just pause for a second and think about that. Because if you are so certain that you know which day of the Lord we're talking about, how, pray tell, could they think that they missed it? Did they see a driverless chariot rolling down the road and they thought, I knew it, I knew I should have been a dispensationalist. The rapture has happened, right? I mean, like, what, what exactly is going on here? But look again at the passage that we just read. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Different verb here than the one used in chapter 4 to describe being caught up. Completely different. Not even related. 
Chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, when the Lord appears, we are caught up together with him in the clouds. Different verb here. We're talking about the coming of the Lord, and we are gathered together to him. And Paul says, speaking of that, don't be worried as though the day of Christ had come. The rapture hasn't happened. The second coming hasn't happened. You're not all dead and in purgatory right now. Like, just put your minds at ease for a moment. Like, you really have to think, what did they think this was talking about for them to believe that it has already happened? And then you remember that Paul refers in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to some who say that the resurrection has already passed. Ah, okay, so there are questions about this coming of the Lord and what exactly it means and what, how exactly it's going to be fulfilled. And, and evidently, some Christians are being taught the God. That's why Paul says, don't be shaken by spirit, word, or letter as if from us. Somebody has represented Paul or the other apostles as teaching this idea. Oh, the coming of the Lord, that's already happened. That's already been fulfilled. You don't have it. You're not waiting for And Paul says, no, 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 that's not right. That's not true. But clearly he has, they have, a different coming in mind than what you and I have in mind when we think about the coming of the Lord, right? I mean, when we think about the coming of the Lord, nobody's going to miss it. Like if they're on the housetop and they go down into the house, that's okay. Jesus is going to know that they're there, right? He's got the x-ray vision going on. And if they are outside of the house and they want to flee to the hills, not going to do them any good. Jesus, Jesus can catch them, right? They'll just, they'll just go to judgment tired, right? So that, that, when we think about the coming of the Lord, nobody's going to miss it. But they thought they had missed it. He says that day, whatever day that is, that day won't come unless the falling away comes first. We're falling away. I thought in chapter 5 you said there weren't going to be any signs. He says, well, well actually, there are, there are some preparatory things that have to happen here. Are we talking about the same day or are we talking about different days? And there are different ways of resolving that question, by the way. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Okay, now, now at least we know we're talking about the Antichrist, except that he's nowhere called the Antichrist. Not here, not anywhere else. You, I mean, you, you have been trained to believe that this Antichrist character is talked about all through the New Testament. He's not. He's not. John talks about Antichrists, plural. He says they're already in the world in the first century. Oh, by the way, Paul says this man of sin, this man of lawlessness, is already in the world. He says, by the way, don't you remember I talked to you about this while I was still there? Like I told you about all of this. You actually know what's restraining him right now. And you know that when that restraint is taken out of the way, he will be revealed because it's already at work. This lawlessness, this mystery of lawlessness already at work. Are we talking about a coming of the Lord preceded by apostasy and the appearance of an antichrist character that is more than 2,000 years in the future? Or are we talking about something that's a little bit closer? I mean, maybe the antichrist has been hiding in a cave for the last two millennia and he's just a really old guy. I don't know. This is a difficult passage, but I want you to notice several things. Whatever day of Christ is being discussed, some of the saints thought that it had already come. The day probably refers to the destruction of Jerusalem, not to the end of the world. Nobody thinks they're going to miss the end of the world. But the destruction of Jerusalem that's talked about repeatedly throughout your New Testament in more passages than you've realized, maybe. That judgment, they could believe, had happened, and they had not seen it. Secondly, Paul had already taught the church about this event, 
and what would precede it in his ministry in the city. In other words, what is mysterious to us would not have been nearly as mysterious to them. Third, the day would be preceded by an apostasy of some kind. Fourth, the man of lawlessness was already in the world in Paul's day, and the Thessalonians knew who he was and who was restraining him. Those features do not support any interpretation of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as referring to the day of Christ that still remains in the future for us. I think that what's going on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is Paul is talking about the destruction in Jerusalem in AD 70. And I think, a little bit of guesswork on my part, I think that these various references that Paul makes, for example, to the false teachers who are saying that the resurrection is already passed, is referring to the fact that among the churches of the first century, there were some teachers who were suggesting that that judgment of Jerusalem was a more spiritualized judgment that was associated with the resurrection of the dead promised by Jesus and that that was all that they had to look forward to. And Paul, in this passage and in others, is clarifying, no, 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 that's not correct. That is not the resurrection that Jesus speaks, about, speaks of and that, and that is not a spiritual, invisible event. You're going to know it when it happens. Because the Lord is going to rain fire on the city and on the temple. I think that's the context. But, even if I'm wrong about that, even if I'm wrong about that, I don't think that these features support the idea that whatever is being discussed in this chapter is referring to the Lord's second coming at the end of all days. Now, I will point out, I've given you on the last page of your handout tonight uh, five recommended resources. I will tell you some of these are a little bigger and more challenging reads than others. Uh, the two easiest ones on the list, well, I'd say the three, the first, third, and fourth. So Keith Matheson's book, Postmillennialism and Eschatology of Hope, if you only buy one book on postmillennialism in your life, let it be that one. Ken Gentry's Postmillennialism Made Easy, just republished a few years ago. That's a really good one. Super accessible, very helpful, easy to read. Third, Doug Wilson's Heaven Misplaced. It's a good book. Short, pithy, to the point. I would tell you to buy Matheson's book if you only buy one. The other two, a little bit more beefy. So, going to be a little bit of a more challenging read. You're going to have to chew a little bit more. Super helpful. If you really want to dig in, uh, the last book on that list, Ken Gentry's He Shall Have Dominion, is probably the book for you to have. But I will point out that in Matheson's book, he has an appendix devoted entirely to this passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he goes through it in a, in a concise way, accessible way, but a sufficiently complete way. And I am, I am personally where he's at on this. I think, I think that he's correct that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is talking about the second coming at the end of all days. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is probably talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is definitely talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. That would be my conviction, um, and if we had a lot of time to kind of walk through and exegete each of those three passages, that would be uh, what I would suggest to you. But we're out of time for tonight, so we're going to stop there. Uh, we've still got three pages, I think, of... Uh, objections to wade through next week. So we'll carry this over at least one more week. Let's bow and we'll close in prayer. And then if any of you do have questions about what we've covered tonight, we'll go over that for a few minutes.
Gracious God, we're thankful for the time of study and fellowship. We're thankful that we can meet together to wrestle with these questions. We pray, Lord, that we would not merely be interested in theological or exegetical questions, uh, but that we would truly be interested in believing and thinking biblically and Christianly about your purpose and plan for this world. We don't want this to be an esoteric conversation, Father, in which we pat ourselves on the back about how much we know. We want to truly pour over Scripture and learn things that we have not previously understood. We pray that you would make us humble. We pray that you would make us grateful. We pray that we would approach this with a great deal of reverence and that we would come out of this study with a great deal of joy and that we would believe and expect, O God, that you are able and willing to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or have ever thought or ever will imagine. Bless us as we return to our homes, watch over us, and prepare our hearts for the Lord's day. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.